Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, Jeremiah chapter 7. It's where we're going to be headed today. Weeping for a nation. And I, I do certainly do that. I don't know about you sometimes. Weep for my nation. Today's message, uh, we're titling it a message to worshipers in God's house. A message to worshipers in God's house. Still hearing a ringing up here. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah, I'm right here. Yeah. All right. He's going to mess around with me over there. So, There's a, this week, a public religion research uh, institute, the P- Public Religion Research Institute, released a, a study about the American values uh, that we hold here. It was called the American Values Survey in 2021, and it asked thousands of Americans for their views on issues in the culture and issues of religious significance and political, uh, you know, opinions. I didn't read the whole study, but there was one portion that I read about that really grieved me, and this one was about abortion. And it was asking the question, um, if you think Roe versus Wade is the right decision, that America made the right decision in that. Of course, right now there's so much debate about that. So in general, 63% of Americans said that yes, Roe versus Wade is the right decision. 82% of people who are religiously unaffiliated, that's what they call themselves, that 82% of them say that Roe versus Wade is the right decision. This was surprising, but 71% of the mainline Protestants, so Lutheran, Anglican, the more liberal churches, 71% of them say, yes, Roe versus Wade is the right decision. But honestly, this grieved me the most. 30% of evangelicals, which is basically the category we would fit into, 30% of evangelicals say, yes, Roe versus Wade is the right decision. That's one, almost, that's one out of almost every three people, evangelicals, saying that Roe versus Wade is right. Why, here's the question, why would they say that? Why would they uh, hold that opinion? Now, one of the things I'm thinking, I'm sure there's a lot of different thoughts and several factors there, but we've lived in this mindset for so long now in America that it almost seems normal to be allowed to have abortions or to kill babies. That almost just seems normal. In fact, I think in some ways even we Christians have become numb to some of the most outrageous evils of our society when we really stop and think about it. Jeremiah was dealing with a nation whose morality had been in a steep decline for a very long time. Even the worshipers that went to God's house were calling evil good and good evil. And Jeremiah was chosen before birth and then ordained 
to confront the people about this. And he, he was ordained to say that this living and this way of life cannot go on forever. God will not allow this. So the book of Jeremiah is a collection of his prophecies, his sermons, some poetry in there that he wrote, some laments, and, and history. And it's not necessarily in chronological order. So we're going through it and we're pulling out some of the key chapters that really help us get a good understanding what the main message of Jeremiah is throughout. So we're going to go to chapter 7. This is sometimes called the temple sermon. And we're going to see why. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Now let me give us some historical background here. King Josiah, the the grandson and son of wicked kings, grew up with Jeremiah. When, when When you look at the history, it really seems to point out that Jeremiah as a young man and Josiah were similar age. And they grew up together. At eight years old, Josiah became king. At 16 years old, he really started to seek the Lord personally. At 20 years old, he commanded that the high places be torn down in the nation. By the way, eight years old, 16 years old, 20 years old, making these big changes. Let me just say, young people can be used of God in a big way. At 26 years old, he commanded that the people clean up and renovate the temple. The temple had, been func- had not been functioning for many years uh, in, in the time of his grandfather and his father before him. And so uh, he, now at, at his reign, he, Josiah is saying, that's it. We need to get the t- temple back up. We need to establish Worship of God again in that temple, so let's get to work. And so they began to work. Well, in the middle of that work, while they were cleaning everything up, they found a copy of the Torah, a copy of the law, God's Word, the Bible. No one had a copy. No one had been reading the Bible. No one, nobody knew what it actually said at the moment. And they're just, and they're just shocked to hit, get a copy of the Word of God. They, they go into this. I mean, people are just beside themselves, and Josiah has the book read, and people realized how much they had grieved God. And things changed, uh, outwardly at least, and people started to get back what they were supposed to do because they were reading the Word of God. Yeah, a little girl it's, was watched, saw, went to church one day, and she saw a bunch of people coming down to the front and seeking the Lord and getting on their faces before God, and she leaned over to her mom and said, Mom, this is a re-Bible. This is a re-Bible. <laughs> but she doesn't realize how appropriate that is. A revival is when people get back to the Word of God. It's a re-Bible, is right. But unfortunately, this was more outward than inward, and the people came back, but it was not a full heart revival. At 39 years old, Josiah went to go get involved in a battle between Assyria and Egypt. He was warned not to do it, but he did it anyway. And during that battle, King Josiah, an arrow came and hit him. And he, and he was injured, uh, gravely injured. They took him back to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem he died. After Josiah, his, 
His son, third-born son, became king, Jehoahaz. But now, because Egypt was really in control of the area, the Egyptian king placed a different son of Josiah in, uh, as king over Judah. They were a vassal state. That son's name was Jehoiakim, a terrible king. And this king led the people backwards. Josiah had brought reform. They started worshiping again in the temple. Things were happening again. They were trying to get back to the word of God, at, at least to a certain extent. And this king just turned everything backward. He, he set up high places. Again, he set up, uh, he even brought the worship of idols into the temple itself. Uh, Ashtoreth, Molech, Chemosh just brought those idols right back into the temple of God. Now, this is most likely the setting for this chapter. The rest of the story, after chapter 7 here, we can look and see what happened after this sermon in chapter 26 of Jeremiah. We're not going to go there today. But here's a little hint for us before we get there. The people hated Jeremiah's sermon. They despised what Jeremiah said there in the temple. In fact, they took their anger out on him in a big way. So, this morning, I'm just reteaching the sermon, okay? If you get mad at me, don't take your anger out on this guy, okay? All right. So the Lord said to Jeremiah, here's what you do. You stand in the gate of this temple that's now going backwards, that now there's idols in God's house. You stand in the temple, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and you proclaim this word. I want you to picture it. I have a picture of the temple that... that probably resembles Solomon's great temple that he had built that had been renovated by Josiah. Some people milling around the courtyard, some coming in to do their weekly or monthly sacrifices and feasts and whatever they're going to be doing for that time. But if you were there, you would notice a big problem. As I mentioned, since, since uh, Josiah's son was in charge, Jehoiakim, you would begin to see that these other idols are right there next to the places where you would sacrifice to the, the Lord God. And you'd walk into the courtyard and you'd see these different idols placed up there. God was no longer the one and only. He was simple, simply one of many gods. So here's the message then that J- Jeremiah boldly delivers and God tells him to. Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, he's standing there in the gates, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. And I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In other words, the false priests and prophets were telling the people, You can live however you want to live. It's okay, as long as you come into the temple and do your sacrifices. You do those little sacrifices... And as long as you come to the temple, it's going to be okay. The lying words were the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The, the thought here, it's like people who come to church and say, I'm a church member, I'm a church member, I'm a church member. But they never meet with the Lord personally. Sunday, 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 God cares about my Sunday self, but not Monday through Saturday self. The home church, the home church, the home church. I go to the home church. God's not going to be angry with me. I go to the home church. You could apply this also to people who 
symbolize one aspect of their faith and then make Christianity all about that one thing. I can live however I want, but at least, uh, at least I believe in the charismatic doctrine. At least I believe in reform doctrine. At least I'm a Baptist. At least I have the right music. At least I look right. At least I homeschool, etc., etc., etc. And we start to make Christianity about this one thing. We cannot make following Christ about one external issue. It's about so much more. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple is my protector. As long as we put our time in and going to the temple and doing what we're supposed to do, we're good. God won't see anything, but God wants the real deal. And it's real in a person's life when there's true, genuine obedience. Verse 5, look at this. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. God just wants obedience. Once I see, he says, your heart break for others, and you start to help your neighbors, strangers, orphans, widows, the helpless. Once you release those false gods, then I know that your hearts are turning to me. This is true religion. James chapter 1, verse 27, you'll remember that verse. It says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And for the Jews, if they did this, God was saying, I will allow you to continue in the land and live in the land. This was the covenant that I've made with Moses. Follow these commands and you'll live happily in the land. I'll give you peace. Now, verse 7, by the way, the Jews dwelling in the promised land forever, as he had promised, the, the Jews in the promised land is a picture of the Christian living in the victorious Christian life. So God's promise of the, pro, to the, the, of the land to the Jews was both unconditional and conditional. Let me explain what I mean. In the sense that he gave it to Abraham as a gift, this land, it wasn't earned or deserved. It was just given to them. This is your land, and that's in the Abrahamic covenant. But in the sense of living in the land and enjoying the land, that came through obedience. That's the covenant with Moses. So here's how that pictures our walk with the Lord. You and I are given salvation by grace, through faith. It's not earned or deserved. But we're given enjoyment of our Christian life through obedience to the word of God. We're not going to enjoy this, this thing that God gave us unless we're walking with the Lord. If you want to enjoy the Christian life, you have to yield to Jesus and obey him. But these people, they were living in wicked rebellion, and now they were trusting in the temple as their safety net. Verse 8, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, 
and commit adultery, the Ten Commandments there, and swear falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and said, we are delivered to do all these abominations. There it is. You break the Ten Commandments, then you come into the temple and said, we're delivered, we're saved, so we can do all these abominations. What a sick, twisted, self-justifying view of worshiping God. And yet it is exactly what my human flesh wants to do and your human flesh wants to do. I'm saved by grace. God will excuse anything, really, that I want to do. This is why Paul used such harsh language in Romans 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In other words, this is unthinkable that we would eat, that, that would cross our minds. It is complete distortion of salvation. It is a complete distortion of God's grace. Now, I had someone actually tell me, and me and my wife, we were talking with somebody about their marriage, and she wanted out of her marriage. And she told me, God wants me happy, so he is fine with me leaving my husband for this other man. I mean, she literally just said the words, like it didn't even bother her. Do not use God to justify your disobedience to God. Just because you say, I've been praying about this, doesn't mean you can disobey the Bible. <laughs> we Christians are pretty good at that. I've been praying about this, and I, I, think I'm gonna do, I think it's fine if I do this. Hold on. Don't disobey God's word and, 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 and justify it. Jeremiah speaking for God, verse 11. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. A den of robbers was a place for, th for thieves to come and hide from the authorities. So these folks thought that they could do their sin, then run into the temple, and then their sin then would just be hidden from God's eyes. God wouldn't see it. I, I'm in the temple. But look what God says very clearly. But I have seen it. Behold, even I have seen it. And Jesus quoted Jeremiah in this verse when he drove the money changers out of the temple. Remember that story? About 500 years later in the temple that was rebuilt in, uh, before Jesus' day. And they were doing a similar thing. They were taking advantage of people and using the temple as a cover for their sin. And Jesus makes those whips and he drives the money changers out and he says... Uh, you have made this a den of thieves. This is a house of prayer, but you've made this a den of thieves. By the way, this is where we see Jesus the most worked up, don't we, in the Bible? And that, that's saying something. And Jeremiah continues, verse 12. But go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. God says, let's take a field trip to Shiloh. Uh-oh, God had to bring up Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle was from the days of Joshua to Samuel, over 360 years. And the same thing happened there as was now happening in Jerusalem in Judah. Years of evil practices and false worship from God's people 
And then at the end of that, in Samuel's day, you remember Eli's son, wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas were defiling the tabernacle, wicked things being done right there, and God had enough. He allowed the ark to be removed by the Philistines, and then the whole area was completely destroyed. Today, Shiloh is just in ruins. If you'll look behind me, you'll see they have rocks where they think the tabernacle once stood. It's just a bare, dry nothing. God basically says, think about this, did the fact that my house and the Ark of the Covenant was in Shiloh stop me from allowing it to become a pile of rocks? No, it did not. Verse 13, And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but you answered not. Rising up early and speaking. This refers to God sending many early prophets to help and help the people stay on track and warn them of the direction that they were heading. God always, always, always gives warnings. Always. This reminds me of a great little book called My Heart, Christ's Home. Have you heard of that book? Every Christian should read it. It's by Robert Boyd Munger, and he wrote this book, and a picture, he wrote this allegory. He pictured his heart as a house that God would come, or that Jesus would come and dwell in. And he wanted to give every room of his heart to the Lord. Lord, you, you have the kitchen of my heart, and, and you have the living room of my heart, and you have the bedroom, and you even have the closets where I keep all the stuff that I don't want anybody to see. But one of the points is just so beautiful in this little book. He says, Jesus came in and he was sitting by, in the living room by the fireplace and I saw him sitting there and I started to talk to him and we sat there and we had such wonderful, a wonderful time just talking together. And Jesus said, well, why don't we just meet here every morning, right here by the fire, you and me, early in the morning. And so Robert Boyd Munger in this picture, he says, yes, I, so I agreed, let's do that every morning. I love that. And so they made a deal and an appointment, and every morning for a couple weeks, boy, he was there meeting with Jesus. It was the sweetest thing. But a few, a few days went by, and he, was got, he had gotten so busy, he was just too busy to meet with Jesus. He was just rushing out of the door, trying to get life things taken care of, and, and some time passes, quite a bit of time passes. And one morning, he's about to rush out for work, and he looks over, and he sees Jesus still sitting there by the fire. And he, Robert goes over and asks, Jesus, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, I never miss my appointments. I've been here every day waiting to meet with you. That, what a sweet picture. And, and oh, what, how that struck Robert's heart. Jesus is every day rising up early, waiting to meet with us. And uh, it's up to us to make that appointment an important part of our life. We cannot, I don't think we could say enough about just the time we individually, each personally, spend with Jesus Christ. But God rose up early, he says here, to speak with his people, but they heard not and they answered not. Verse 14, therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust... And unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. 
Don't think that Jerusalem is safe just because you have the temple. God doesn't live in temples built with hands, Paul said. God doesn't need a temple to still be God. The temple's great, but he will have no problem allowing it to be destroyed. And don't think that just because America was built on biblical principles, that God will allow it to last forever. Next, God gives this surprising message to Jeremiah, one that he'll tell him three times in this book. Verse 16, Therefore, pray not. Pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Wow. Triple statement here for emphasis. Pray not for them. Don't lift up a cry and pray for them. Don't make intercession for them. Do not pray. I will not listen. By the way, before I get into that, I want to say this. There is a strange comfort to me in this. The statement implies to me that God likes to answer prayer. (laughs) So he tells Jeremiah, don't pray, because I'm not going to answer this one. Normally, anything you ask, I'm going to answer. But I don't, don't even dare ask me this one. But this might take some people by surprise. Why would God say, do not pray? Because God's train of judgment was already barreling down the tracks. God has, had made up his mind. There was no stopping it. It is what it is. There is going to be judgment in Jerusalem. The people had gone so far in their sin and their non-repentance that God knew that they had crossed a line that they could never go back, and they would not go back. It's similar, I think, to someone who in our day would reject Christ's call of salvation so long. They reject, 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 reject so long that they get to a point where they'll never cross back, and they'll never accept Jesus. Now, this is a line that we cannot see. You and me have no idea where that line is. Only God knows this line. And it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that is unforgivable. If God, so if, if God knows that they won't turn here, then why even preach? Why would Jeremiah even need to go there and tell everybody what's going on? Well, number one, it's so that no one can stand someday before God and say, I never heard, Lord, I never heard. I I wanted to hear, but I never heard. No, this exposes their guilt. It it shows that they are guilty people. And number two, I believe also this is for those people in exile. You see, Jeremiah was one of the books that was read after the people were already in exile in Babylon, and they're reading and wondering, how come our people are in in slavery here in Babylon when we have uh, Judah and our Jerusalem in shambles. What, what happened? What happened? And so they would be reading, and they did read the book of Jeremiah and see how to get back. They would know the way home. And I just want to remind all of us that God is always doing more than just the here and now. He's always working, and he's working in our lives now, but there's also a future plan that God is working. Then God helps Jeremiah see how far ingrained this wickedness in this nation had become. Look at verse 17. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? This is just daily life now. Verse 18. The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. 
and the women need their dough. That's what my wife always tells me. The women need their dough, okay? (laughs) 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 To make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. God says, look, look at everyday life in Jerusalem. Look at the homes of people and see how idol worshiping is permeating everything. By the way, a good reminder that God sees through our roofs right into our homes. (laughs) And he sees behind closed doors. God knows everything that happens in our homes. What happens in the homes of America, including ours, is seen. God says, look at how these kids, they gather the wood, the dads build the fire, the moms make these little cakes, maybe in the shape of a star or a moon. No one knows exactly what these cakes were. There's a lot of conjecture about it. But obviously, it was a way to get in good favor with the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven is an interesting term. The title referred to Ishtar, an Assyrian or a Babylonian goddess originally. She also had, took on many forms. She, she was called Ashtoreth and Astarte by various other groups and later, later Artemis by the Greeks. They called her the wife of Baal or Molech. So there was this union in the heavens between Baal and Ashtoreth. And later they used, some began to blend this worship of this goddess with God, Jehovah God. And they even said that this pagan goddess, she was a consort of, the, of Jehovah God, wicked. And the worship to her involved all sorts of depraved practices. And she's the one who gives life and she's the one who brings blessings to us. And so there would just be all sorts of uh, wicked things. Interestingly, by the way, the Roman, Roman Catholic priests came along and popes and they gave Mary the title Queen of Heaven and gave her the position of being co-redeemer with Jesus. Now, Mary was a wonderful woman, but there's no such thing as the Queen of Heaven. And the Bible certainly never says that Mary was the Queen of Heaven or the co-redeemer. And God's people had gotten, but God's people here now had gotten the whole family involved in this horrible idol worship. And wouldn't it have been good, if you think about it, wouldn't it have been so good if they made the same effort in helping all the children get involved in worship of Jehovah? Come on, you, you sing a song, you play this, and you pray for our family, and they're getting the whole family, that, man, that'd be so sweet, the children, mom, everybody involved. But no, they were going the other way, and, and just a, such a reminder that these are such precious years if you have children. Don't train them to love the idols of this world. That's going to that's gonna come in so much. Let them see you worshiping God and help them get involved in the same. There's, there's nothing like, by the way, indoctrinating children in idol worship to make God angry. Look what he says, verse 19. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? In other words, yes, I'm angry with this, but you're only hurting yourselves. You're only causing confusion in your own lives. And by the way, humanity's unexplainable addiction to self-harm. I don't understand it. We know it'll hurt, but we do it anyway. And we say many times, sin makes you stupid. 
Sin just makes you do stupid things. Verse 20, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man, upon beast, upon the trees of the field, and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. Notice all the things that their sin affected. Man, animals, plants, farms. The very things that they sought after from the queen of heaven are the very things that God's going to consume. Immorality and sin have a negative effect on everything. 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 Verse 21, Then saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Put your burnt offerings under your sacrifices and eat flesh. What does he mean by this? Most Jewish sacrifices involve someone eating the meat. Uh, either the priest would eat portion of the meat, you'd bring your sacrifice, and the priest would take a portion and he would eat it, or a portion would be given back to you after the sacrifice, and you and your family would eat the meat. But the burnt offerings were different. The burnt offerings, God had commanded them that these animals would be utterly consumed, completely burnt up, and nobody eat anything. So God uses a little holy sarcasm here in this verse and just says, you know what? Just take your burnt offerings along with your sacrifices and have a barbecue. It really doesn't even matter. You might as well go ahead and eat the meat. Go for it. Eat it. That's how much your sacrifices in this temple actually mean to me. They're worthless because your life is completely out of control. You're doing all these wicked things, and you think that those little sacrifices in the temple are going to help you. Verse 22, For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. No, that's not the thing I wanted. Verse 23, But this thing I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. God says, Check the Bible. When you first came out of Egypt, I did not say, set up the sacrificial system first. That's the one thing I want. No, it was obey first. The ethical came before the ritual. The moral came before the ceremonial. God has always wanted wanted heartfelt moral obedience before sacrifices. Samuel even said that I will have obedience rather than sacrifice. Without the first, the second is just a joke and a charade. Lots of people get baptized, take communion, lift their hands, dance around, and think this is all there is. But just because you sit in a pew doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you sit in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you sit in a donut shop doesn't make you a police officer. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) What does God say he wants us to do here? Obey! Hebrew, the Hebrew word is sama. It's the key word. It's five times in verses 23 to 28. The literal meaning is hearing intelligently and paying attention to. Obey! God wants his people just to be so close to him. Here's what he wants. Just be so close to me that you can hear me what I'm saying. And then walk in that. That's all I really want. Just come close, come near, read my word, and just just walk in that. Verse 24, but they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward, not forward. Are you going backward or forward? No one is staying put. No one is static. No one stays in one place in their relationship with the Lord. Backward or forward. 
verse 25, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Wow, man, congratulations to Jeremiah. You got one of the best callings. (laughs) Speak, but they're not going to listen. Call, but they will not answer. Boy, don't you feel like that sometime in America, though? Whew. God has called all of us in this nation to keep calling, keep calling, keep preaching. But sometimes it feels like nobody's listening. In fact, look at how much this next verse applies to America. Listen to this, verse 28. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. That's the one thing I feel so often. Truth is dead in this country. No one is speaking truth. Certainly not the politicians, not the college professors, not the scientists. They aren't honest with the evidence. Listen, I just read about Albert Einstein in his time. He, he hid some of his findings because of what he thought his peers would think. Scientists are always doing this. This is nothing new. They've even admitted that in studies, and Albert Einstein later admitted that. Medical professionals don't tell us the truth. CDC won't come out and say that sexual promiscuity is the main cause of the dramatic rise in STDs. They will not say that. Why? Because it's too political. It just hurt people. No one tells us the truth. Truth is perished. And that is why the Bible is so precious these days. It's the one thing that I know is true. I can always trust it 100%. Real quick, verse 29. Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away. That's why I'm getting bald. I'm cutting off my hair. I'm doing what the Bible says. Yeah. And take up a lamentation on high places, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of this wrath. This means to mourn, grieve over sin for this generation. Verse 30. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. God, may it never be that the home church would be polluted by other gods. If churches are supposed to be hospitals for the sick, then, and, then nobody wants a dirty hospital. We need to stay clean so that we can help reach people. Verse 31, they've built high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my heart. Violence to children is always the ramification of an immoral nation. Hinnom is called is also called Gehenna. It's just outside Jerusalem. A little valley. Tophet means a drum. Here in this valley, they would erect altar to Molech, heat up the iron arms, red hot, and lay their firstborn sons to be burned alive. The drums would be beating so that the sound of the cries could not be heard. But why would a parent do this? They were told that the spirit of their son would come back and live in the next child. So you're not really losing a child. You're still going to get that child back. And if you do this, it'll secure prosperity for you and your family. What does it take for a person to be okay with killing their child? The motivation was prosperity and tricking themselves into believing that the child really isn't dying. 
But look at the motivations for abortion. We can't afford them, these children. Prosperity. And it's not really a, a life anyway, tricking themselves into thinking it's not really death. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. When a nation can go so far in their minds to justify murdering innocent children, when we can be okay with that, when 30% of evangelicals can say that it's okay, then we know that sin and idolatry have a death grip on our nation. And this is why I can't understand that. I'm going to read this as we close. This is how God feels about this child's sacrifice. Listen to this, verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. And the carcasses of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and for the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. If you want to know how God feels about killing innocent children, you only have to read right here. Lord, I just feel like I'm grieving for the sins of my own nation. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.